0: Turn on your equipment. As Larry mentioned, uh, I, on my shelf in my office, I have uh, a, a whole uh, level there with just Bibles of all different sorts of translations, and and I, we have access to the internet with with all sorts of translations. And I have shelf upon shelf upon shelf of commentaries explaining those verses in my native tongue. So I've been so encouraged during this month as we've had different missionaries come and share just to think globally about the Great Commission. We've talked a lot in this last year as we look at forward to the discipleship pathway when COVID uh, starts to settle down a little bit uh, about making disciples in our context and about how we as a church can participate in that. But we never want to lose sight that the Great Commission is also global, to the ends of the earth. So let's pray and we'll dive into God's Word today and, and pray that God's Word will challenge us to live out our faith, both here and to participate in God's global mission. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we, we thank you for the Finks and their, their faithful service of you over the years and, and for their current service with Bibles International. Lord, we're just so grateful for how you're using your Word to transform people's lives. Lord, we pray for their work. We pray that You'll provide all the funds they need for these projects. Sometimes we look at the amounts of those funds and it seems so high, and yet we know that You are faithful and You always provide. And so, Lord, we pray for miraculous provision. In the midst of COVID-19 and all the other obstacles, Lord, we know that they are not too big for You. And, Lord, we pray this morning as we open Your Word that You'll speak through it to us, that we'll be challenged as we read a story of people that, are oftentimes quite similar to us, where we look in front of us and see mighty obstacles and we don't see a way around and we lose trust. and We allow the fear of the obstacles to overcome our faith. So Lord, I pray that You'll speak through Your Word today. In Your name we pray. Amen. Has God ever called you to do something that you were afraid to do? When I was 22 years old, walking around the neighborhood, my wife said, Hey, you should become a youth pastor at that church right there. And I laughed. (laughs) Ha ha! I'm not ready to be a youth pastor. And a few months later, after a 15-month interview, 15-minute interview, they offered me the job. Walking out of the church with the keys in my hand, I remember this tremendous fear coming over me, going, I saved all my youth ministry classes to the end of my degree, and I never finished my degree, so I haven't had a single youth ministry class. Okay, God. You're in control. I found some old pictures back in the day of Skinny Phil. Uh, that's me with a, a, boa, a, a pink boa constrictor around my neck in the top right. I don't know. That was one of those trips that happens in youth ministry that you just wonder why in the world was there a pink boa constrictor. I don't remember, but it was there. But I just remember the fear involved of saying, okay, God, you've called me to do this, but I don't feel like I have the tools and stepping out in faith. And there are other times where where maybe God calls you or pushes you to do something that you feel like you don't have the skills for. Maybe you're sitting on a bus or on a a train, and and you feel like God is leading you to to talk to somebody about your faith, and you just feel like, well, I mean, I don't know the right words to say, or maybe even at Thanksgiving in a gathering, if you do gather, and one of your family members doesn't know Christ, and an opportunity presents itself, and you're going, Oh, I'm afraid what will happen if I share. Have you ever had a time where you were in conflict with somebody and, and it was just really hard and, and rather than take a leap of faith and go and talk to them, you just avoid the relationship and hope that time will just make it better? Have you ever let fear keep you from trusting in God's promises and from doing God's will? Today we're going to read a story where the Israelites just did that. God had called them to do something, but they let their fear be greater than their faith. So go ahead and turn uh, to in your Bibles to number thir- numbers thirteen. And while you're doing that, I want to recap where we've been. So there's this promise that was given to Abraham that through Abraham, uh, all nations would be blessed. But God told Abraham that, that his people would go down to Egypt and they would be slaves for 400 years. But then when they left, they would be a mighty nation and have great possessions. And they would go to the land that he had promised them. And we've been going through this story. We saw how God led the Israelites out of the promised land and, and all these things. And, and then where we come to today, it's two years have gone by and they're, they're right at the edge of the promised land. They're just ready to go in. They can, they can see it. Let's pick up the story in Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at that, at the Lord's command, Moses sent them from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. So in... What, what's happening, we know from Deuteronomy is that the people suggested this and then God sends them out. And And coming up here in verses 4 to 16, we'll see that they set basically a, a chieftain from each tribe. The, the, the main guys, these were, these were leaders, these weren't just random people, leaders from each of the 12 tribes. Now if you read through, you'll notice Levi isn't there. And then you go, wait, uh, there's 12, there's no Levi, how come there's 13? Remember way back when we went to Joseph that Joseph got a double portion of inheritance, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So when you look at Israel, when it's eventually settled, there's 12 tribes, the Levites are priests, they don't have a land. So when you read through the 12 tribes, you notice there's no Levi. But they go through all these things, and then it ends there with Moses renaming Hosea Joshua, because Joshua apparently didn't have a father, he was the son of none. Okay. Anyways, so Hosea means... That was my son's joke. He told me that like every week for four weeks. Uh, Hosea means salvation, but Joshua means the Lord saves. It's no coincidence that my son's name is Joshua because we're looking at names and he said, we want that to be his name. The Lord saves. So Moses renames them just salvation to the Lord saves. And actually... Jesus, that comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which is Joshua, the Lord saves. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and onto the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is its soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to, best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was a season for the first ripe grapes. So he said, "Go explore and bring me back some grapes." They were not only not now. When you think about this, often we think of uh, the the two spies that Joshua sent out uh, into Jericho, and they're they're sneaking around. That's probably not what's going on here. Uh, this was a, very much a, a place that had, it was a trade route, and so these twelve probably walked into the into the cities and just explored and it probably wasn't people didn't look at them and thinking, Oh, that's that's a future army. So not really spies in that sense. Uh but they're they're going through and they're checking out the land. Verse 21. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Re, Rehob toward Labo Hamath. They went through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Seshi, Talmi, and the descendants of Anak lived. And Hebron had been built for seven built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Okay, let's go to the map just to explain it. Basically, they went from the bottom to the top and back, just to make it a little more simple. Okay? So they went on this trip, and interesting little thing, that random sentence, Hebron, had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, actually points to Moses being the author. Because Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household and would have known when stuff was built through his history. So that's just one little, there's a lot of evidence that Moses wrote this, but that's just one little, when you're like, what's up with that random sentence? That's what's up with the random sentence. Okay, anyways, we're going to continue. Verse 23, when they reached the valley of Eschol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That's some big grapes. I bought Costco grapes like two weeks ago, and he got like the five pounds. But I didn't need a pole and two men to carry it. So they, they got this huge cluster of grapes that they're carrying, pomegranates, figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So they took 40 days, traveled all the way to the north, all the way back, brought back some delicious grapes. Verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. Then they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. Now, that phrase with milk and honey just means it's a really prosperous land. They have great pastures that goats and cattle can, can go and graze, and so they're able to produce really good milk. It's a really fertile land, so uh, they have lots of honey, and that's not that doesn't mean they have lots of bees. This would have been that would have been taken from the dates, so date honey. So if you take your date, if you take your honey on a date, you're going to Israel. Verse twenty-six. They came back to Moses. Oh, sorry, verse twenty-eight. But, 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 it's an awesome place. It's really fertile. The land's great. Look at these grapes. But but the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Termites, the Parasites. They all live in the hill country. Those last two were mine. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. See, there there are a lot of bad buts in the Bible. And this is one of them. It's great. God's plans are amazing. It, the, the land is everything we hope for. But the people are powerful. But they have cities. The, the, there's all these heights there. Look at them all. Verse 30, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Joshua and Caleb saw exactly the same thing that the other group saw. They just had a different but. They said, but God. But God is powerful. All throughout the Scriptures we have this phrase, this, but God. Let's look at a few of them. Genesis 50-20 was our memory verse for the Joseph series. You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish What is now being done? The saving of many lives. His brothers took them there, intending to harm him. But God had different plans. We see it all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But let's get into Matthew with Jesus. After talking to the rich young ruler, they're saying, well, if he can't get to heaven, then who can get to heaven? And Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In Ephesians 2, when Paul was talking about how we are made alive in Christ, he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, skipping ahead, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We're nature, we're, 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 made, we're nature, sorry, by nature, children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sin. No hope, but God stepped in and offered salvation. He sent His only Son so that we can have life. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with Him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites. A bad report about the land that they explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the descendants we saw are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the the same to them. Here we have the terrified ten. What do they do? They, They magnify the problem. And they minimized God. They magnified the problem. They minimized God. They said, they're stronger than we are. The land devours those in it, which doesn't make any sense because had it, no, the people that were in it were very prosperous because it was a great land. Everyone's huge. We're like grasshoppers, which is the smallest at that time, the smallest thing to be considered edible, which is very high in protein, asked John the Baptist. And they said, they're descendants of Anna come there and and. Ironically, uh, we we look at ge- the genealogies, it looks like Goliath was a descendant of Anak. So they probably, the descendants of Anak probably were very large. And here they attribute it to the Nephilim from Genesis 6, which we talked about recently. They're They're stirring everybody up and they're maximizing the problem. This is too difficult. And in the midst of doing that, they're minimizing God. We can't do this. We can't make it. Continuing in chapter 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's so shocking that this rebellion is referenced again and again and again throughout the rest of the Scriptures. They all grumbled against Moses and Aaron. That's consistent with their character. We've seen this time and time again since they left Egypt. If only we had died in Egypt or the wilderness. Well, now they're actually going to get a chance to die in the wilderness, which we'll talk about in a minute. They're blaming this situation on the Lord. Why is the Lord bringing us here? Then they reject Moses, in effect rejecting God, because Moses had been the mediator for God during this time. God had every day provided them food, each and every day. As they were traveling through the wilderness, they would stop. Whenever the pillar of smoke or the the fire would stop, they would stop. When it would move, when God's presence would move, they would move. That's how they knew to get where they got. They said that they believed God wouldn't take care of their kids. They were worried that their wives and kids would be taken as plunder and a little bit of irony, their kids are the only ones that go to the promised land. They want to choose a new leader to go back to Egypt. Now just just think how irrational this is. Fear makes us irrational, it makes us make unwise decisions. They go, Let's pick a new leader and let's head back to Egypt. Now imagine this scene. Okay? Let's just think it out for a little bit. Okay, we got a new leader. He takes us back to Egypt. We just we're walking into Egypt, all two point six million of us, or however many there were we walk up to the Pharaoh. Um, hey, new Pharaoh? Hi. Hi. Um, hey, uh, I mean, I know you don't really like us because, uh, God, like, did all these, you know, plagues and stuff and a whole bunch of people died. And then, uh, the last plague, uh, all your firstborn sons died and, and you were kind of, you're like, okay, well, your God's more powerful, so you sent us off with a whole bunch of your treasures. But then you got really mad and, and so your Pharaoh and the army chased us and then God destroyed them. Um, uh, I, you, you might be a little upset with us. I, I, get, I get that. I get that. But, um, you know, we were over there and there were some, some tall people. And so we just want to know if we could just come back and be slaves. We just call it even, you know. Is that good? It's ludicrous, right? It doesn't make any sense. And yet when they were faced with this situation, they, they maximized the problem, they minimized God, and they said, we have to do something different. Ian De good says it this way, Does it make sense to believe that the Lord poured out earth-shattering plagues on Egypt, parted the Red Sea in front of his people, and then fed them miraculously with manna in the wilderness, only to have them fall at the hands of the inhabitants of the promised land? It doesn't make any sense. But fear often causes us to be irrational. And we can look and be like, this makes no sense, but aren't we irrational also? We return again and again to our sin that has ruined us before. We choose to live in bitterness, even knowing that it will deny us our joy. We choose to believe the lies of Satan, even when we know God's promises. We often choose the pleasures of this world, our, our sin, our anger, our selfishness. And we choose them again and again because it comes easier to us than following what God really wants for us, which is way better and what this world has to offer. We can easily point out how irrational they are and and that they're making a horrible decision, but we often do the same thing every day. Verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's like it's good exceedingly, exceedingly, the way it's phrased. It's, it's great land. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of this land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So Moses and Aaron fall face down, probably in prayer, before this assembly. Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes. Imagine Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army. He's been with Moses up. He went halfway up the mountain. When Moses went up the mountain, waited up there, apart from the Israelites. When Moses would go to the tent of meeting, Joshua would wait outside. And often when Moses would go back, Joshua would just stay there. This is a man of God, we'll see very clearly in the... Book of Joshua. Imagine his excitement as they wandered through the promised land because he believed the promises. Seeing the figs and the pomegranates and the the grapes. Seeing how bountiful the land was. Seeing the the big pastures with all the cattle roaming. And thinking, God has brought us here. And excited. And His excitement and His anticipation builds. And they go to share the report. And then the terrified ten turn the whole nation of Israel Against them So he tears his clothes and pleads with them. God has called us. Yes, there is opposition, but God, if the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Don't rebel against the Lord because of your fear, Their protection is gone. Because nothing can stop God. Not walls, not giants, not armies. You have nothing to be afraid of because God has called us to do this. So why did Joshua and Caleb view this issue so differently? They were there. They, they saw the cities with the, with the walls. And, and according to archaeology, these walls were anywhere between 30 and 50 feet and 15 feet deep. These weren't just little walls. These were, were big walls. They saw the large men from Iannac. They saw all the plenty of plentiful people who probably had armies. And yet, they believed that God would bring them the victory. Like David, when he faced Goliath, they saw what others didn't. Victory was dependent upon the Lord. Let's skip ahead in the story quite a bit to Joshua 2. When Joshua sends the, sends the two spies, He learned a lesson. We're not going to send 12. We're going to send two. We'll pick two good ones. Send them over. And they meet Rahab. And Rahab says this in Joshua 2.9, I know the Lord has given you into this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab, from this pagan city, recognized that God was the one giving them victory. And everybody was scared because they knew God was on the side of the Israelites. Everyone was scared, including the Israelites, because they didn't have enough faith in God. Because they maximized the problem and minimized God. Verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. This is a tremendous rejection of God. They want to stone and kill God's messengers. Side note, I'm glad that when I preach a bad sermon, no one tries to stone me. Continue, then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. Okay, kind of a come to Jesus moment here. The glory of the Lord appears there in front of all of them. Now before, God had had this conversation with Moses in private up on the mountain. Here he has it in public. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Imagine their fear in this moment. Now, what's God doing here? Last week, I went into great deal, detail in Exodus 32 about this interaction between God and Moses, and this is basically a repetition of it, so I don't want to go through and explain in detail. So if you're wondering, listen to last week's sermon. But in short, I believe that God is beckoning Moses to be a mediator for the people. And so we talked about that last week. I believe God, by making this threat, is calling Moses to mediate. And You can go back last week to hear the reasoning behind that. I'm going to end uh, the sermon here in in verse 12, but I want to explain what happens in the rest of the chapter before we dive into application. In, In verses 13 to 19, Moses prays a similar prayer than what we looked at last week. He appeals to God's reputation in Egypt and Canaan. He appeals to the Lord's strength. He appeals to the Lord's character, how God is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving, and just Verses 20 to 48, the Lord explains His punishment. He's going to forgive them, but they're not exempt from the consequences. And so they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and everybody who's over 20 years old other than Joshua and Caleb will perish in the wilderness. But the children they were worried about, they're actually going to be the ones that enter the promised land. The ten spies who brought that bad report were immediately struck with a plague and died. In verse 49 to the end of the chapter, the Israelites recognized and realized that they made a horrible mistake. And so they said, we'll go up in battle. And God said, no, I commanded you to go into the wilderness. And Moses said, God's not going to go with you if you go. And the people said, no, we're going to go. They realized that what they did was wrong. And so they tried to go and attack uh, the enemy. And Moses and the Ark of the Covenant remain; They don't go with them. And the people promptly lose the battle because God had told them, to go to the wilderness. So what what is going on in these two chapters, Numbers thirteen and fourteen? We see the spies magnified the problems and minimized God's power. Because of that, the people magnified the problems and minimized God's power God's power. They magnified the problems rather than magnifying the Savior. They magnified the problems rather than magnifying the Creator. They magnified the problems rather than magnifying the Redeemer. The most powerful war army in the world was in the bottom of the Red Sea because of God. And yet rather than pointing back to that, they magnified the problems and minimized God's power. What was the difference between those that died in the wilderness and Joshua and Caleb who ended up in the promised land? Joshua and Caleb believed in God's promises. They magnified God's power. They minimized the problems. They didn't see the obstacles as too mighty for God. So the question is, do we believe in God's promises? Are we driven by faith? Are we driven by fear? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at what fear is. And I believe there's some misconceptions about fear. First, uh, fear can sometimes be a healthy response. Uh, if you see a bear, you probably should be afraid. It wouldn't be wise to go, hey, can I shake your hand and walk up to him unafraid. We try to teach our kids to be afraid of fast cars. And so when we cross the road, we teach them look both ways so that you can know if a car, car is coming and you can make sure that you are safe. An article on Answers in Genesis put it this way. The adrenaline rush, widened pupils, heightened perception, and many other physiologic responses are of fear are clearly designed to help get you to safety. So God has wired our bodies in a sense where we, where we can tell when something is wrong, and so because of that, we know it's good to take precautions. Another thing about fear is taking precautions does not mean that we're living in fear. So when we stop and look both ways before we walk across a street, that's a wise precaution. That doesn't mean we're living in fear. If we're going to go on a on a hike somewhere where there's grizzly bears, we should take a gun or bear spray. I don't know how effective bear spray is, but apparently there's spray. You can I, I don't know, I'd be a little scared, but I don't know if I'd use it correctly. But there is bear spray. Well, the same way. During this pandemic, a lot of times people have accused those that take certain precautions as living in fear. And I just want to encourage you that that taking precautions does not mean you're living in fear. As elders, when we've tried to navigate this stinky situation of COVID, we've tried to do our best to put policies in place to protect our flock, not because we're living in fear, just because we're trying to be wise. So, but when the Bible talks about fear, what is it referencing? There's good fear in the Bible. Fearing God is a, is a good thing. Proverbs 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Deuteronomy 10 and verses 12 and twenty twenty one says, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to fear the Lord your God and to serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. In Psalm 2, it says to serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. It's often hard to understand what it means to fear the Lord because oftentimes when the Lord or angels appear to humans, The first word, the first thing they do is bow in fear, and the first thing that he says is, Fear not. But I think when you look at fear of the Lord, here's some things that help us understand it reverence, awe, respect, seeing God as holy, just, and righteous, understanding how much God hates sin. I think it even involves fearing his judgment of sin and understanding that he disciplines those he loves. I read this quote this week. As children, the fear of discipline from our parents no doubt prevented some evil actions. The same should be true in our relationship with God. We should fear His discipline and therefore seek to live our lives in such a way that pleases Him. Fearing God involves obeying His word and worshiping Him. In Hebrews 12, it puts it this way. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Understanding that he's a consuming fire should cause us to worship with reverence and awe. But there's some bad fear that we can have. As Christians... We don't need to be afraid of condemnation. We should have no fear of condemnation. Romans 8 says this in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question to say. No one. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The answer is no one. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What shall shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'll give you a hint. Nothing. Verse 38, it continues, Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Christians, because of what Christ has accomplished, we don't need to fear condemnation. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear what will happen when we die and we can spend eternity. So there's some bad fears. Seeing our obstacles or our trials as things that are bigger than God lacking trust that God will accomplish His purposes despite whatever situation we find ourselves in. As Americans, we can put our hopes and confidence in our our health and our finances and our job and our relationships. And when those don't work out, we often respond in fear because we don't know what's next, even when God knows what's next. Sometimes we bind a lie that God will always give us health, wealth, and prosperity in this life rather than trusting in our inheritance that He will give us In the next life, Jesus himself said, In this world, there will be trouble. I love this quote I read this week by Ian DeGood. If we simply consider the obstacles that face our churches or the difficulties that we face as individuals, it's easy to conclude that we are overmatched and must inevitably fall short and fail. Humanly speaking, that may be an accurate assessment of our reality. We have All sometimes felt like grasshoppers surrounded by giants on all sides. Our lives are full of impossible challenges, humanly speaking. Do you or I have the power within us to bring our neighbor to faith in Christ or to persevere in a difficult relationship at home or to work to conquer personal besetting sin? Humanly speaking, none of us do. However, the eye of faith recognizes that in this world, reality is not accurately measured whenever we are humanly speaking. This is God's world, in which his word and his promises must ultimately prevail. No matter how great the opposition, if the Lord is pleased with us, our future is assured. If the Lord is pleased with us, our future is assured. I don't I don't know what you're facing today. Maybe it's a sin that you can't seem to defeat or a financial situation that seems to have No way that you you can't figure out any way where you can solve it. Or maybe there's a relationship in your life that's broken and it seems like there's no way to have reconciliation. Or maybe in the midst of this pandemic, with everything going on, your emotions are running out of control and you're fighting anxiety and depression. You feel like there's no way out. You feel trapped. No matter what it is, I encourage you to give it to God and to trust His promises because we have a God who is Faithful. We need to magnify his power and minimize the obstacle rather than mag- magnify the obstacle and minimize God. But once a year, I bring these promises back up in a sermon, and I felt like we needed them today. These are written in your sermon notes, but I want to take a minute to have you close your eyes, and I'm going to read these promises that are straight out of Scripture. These promises are given specifically to people who have a relationship with Jesus and have put their faith in Jesus. So go ahead and close your eyes and listen to these promises as I read them from God's Word. I created you carefully just the way I wanted you. You are precious in my sight. I watch over you by day and by night. I died in your place so that you can have life, and your sin has been nailed to the cross. You are forgiven, and I have permanently adopted you into my family. I have made you a new creation. And I will instruct you in the way you should go. I will walk with you through the darkest valley as I am your help and your deliverer. I will provide everything you need and my grace is sufficient for you. I am always with you and I will give you power to serve in my name. One day I will wipe every tear from your eyes and we will spend eternal life together. You can open your eyes. Promises that I just read are straight from God's word given to each of us. We have, we, we we see God speaking directly to Moses, and it's like, man, I would love that. But we have God speaking God's word speaking directly to us right here. We can open it every day and get his promises new. So if you're living in fear today, trust that God is bigger than any obstacle you have to face. Also, if you you're living in fear today because you don't know Jesus, because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And you read those promises and you go, I don't have that. I don't have a relationship. You know, I said that as a believer, there's no need for fear. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, the right response actually is fear. Because in Matthew 10:28, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, God is love, but He is also just. And He did punish the Israelites for their rebellion. And one day, Jesus will return as judge, and anyone who rejects Him will experience punishment. But there's hope. Jesus offers eternal life and freedom from fear. In First John 4, God is love. Whoever lives, Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. So that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What Jesus is saying is, for those that don't know me, there should be fear of judgment. But for those that have a relationship with me, there's no fear. Fear is cast out. Christ conquered it when He died and rose again. And we can know that God is faithful and we can trust in His promises. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're listening online today or tomorrow or sometime two years from now and you don't know Jesus, give your life to Him today. He is bigger than whatever obstacle you're facing. And if you want to make that decision today, come talk to me after the service. I'd love to pray with you. If you're online, go to our website, Grandrapids.church, www.grandrapidschurch. contact us. We'd love to set you up with someone and get you plugged into a relationship where we can walk with you. But we need to give our obstacles to God because He is bigger than any obstacle we face. So often we're like the Israelites. We just live in fear. Let's have greater faith than our fear. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, You are so good. Lord, I'm so thankful that You're forgiving. Lord, I'm also like these Israelites often. When a problem comes up, I I get afraid. I I get overwhelmed by the obstacles that are in my way. I lose sight of You as as I look at the mountain that seems to be in front of me. As I look at the the fortified cities and and the large people and and all the obstacles that the Israelites looked at, I can see that in my life oftentimes I look at obstacles and I lose faith. Lord, help me to magnify you and to minimize my problems and to trust that you are faithful to meet me in the middle of the mess. Jesus, you have come to give us life to the fullest. So Lord, we, we trust in you. And we lay our problems down at your feet and humbly ask for your help. In your name we pray. Amen.